Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, and we're going to cover 10 chapters this morning. We have plenty of time all day today to do this. Chapters 21 to 31. I told you that we would speed up the study as we got to this point. Everything has been prefatory for these laws that are going to be, that, that are in this section that we won't study in detail. We'll pick up next time in Exodus 32. But uh, it is important for us to realize that God has prefaced all of these laws with things we've already studied, with His grace in particular. You remember when we studied the Ten Commandments, we looked at that section in Exodus 20. We said the, the, the preface, the preamble to the Ten Commandments is all important. He says before He gives any of those ten words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make graven images and so forth. Those commandments only came after he reminded them, I have saved you, I have redeemed you. Everything that I give to you as a command is only for your good. Now, then he turns from those ten principles, those ten words, those ten commandments, and he applies them to everyday life. He applies them, uh, God does, through Moses, applies them in very specific areas of Israel's life. And so you can read these laws, and sometimes if you just plop down without any understanding, any background, any context, you can, you can think, what in the world is God nosing into every detail of their lives for? Why does, he, why does He prescribe how they put a fence around their roof or how they are to boil a goat or how they are taught to mix different uh, weaves and clothing or, or how they are to uh, leave a mother on her nest? Why does He give such specific laws? Well, these are applications of the principles, the general principles He's given us in the Ten Commandments for life to go well with us. Many of them don't apply in our context because they're not, they're, they're, they're specific to that context, but they show us how God's law, reflecting on His grace, gives us guidance for every part of our life. Now, the reason I picked these laws, these laws regarding bond servants, the reason I picked these to, to be the signature study for the whole ten chapters is this, because these, these are the first instructions He gives. When He says, I'm going to apply my law in your life, the first thing He says is, this is the way you're supposed to treat people who are vulnerable. Now, you might look at the heading of your text and you're, you're repulsed already. You say, uh, this is, uh, th these are laws about slaves? How could, this be, how could this be right? That's an unfortunate use. That's an unfortunate word chosen by the translators. Because uh, this is, this is uh, these are laws concerning employees, not chattel slaves, the kind of slavery we know about as a scourge in our country for 250 years and in the British Empire as well. Chattel slavery was taking another person uh, forcibly, making them your property, 
and then working them without any reward for what they did, reducing them, dehumanizing them. The Bible knows nothing that gives no countenance to that kind of slavery whatsoever. In fact, in 2116, that is forbidden. Man-stealing is forbidden. And why would it not be? God causes His people to pivot away from the harsh and harmful and dehumanizing slavery they experienced in Egypt, and He says effectively, that will not happen in my kingdom and among my people. Israel was, a, was an agrarian economy. So everybody was either an independent farmer or an employee of a farmer. So even as, so as we read this text, and you're, you may be shocked by the way these words strike your ears, I want you to hang on in the study, and you will understand how dignifying and transformative God's law really is, how humanizing it really is. And he shows us that he's not just in the business. He's not in the business of giving merely laws. He's in the business of creating a new humanity. With that in mind, we turn to <clears throat> Exodus 21, read first several verses, and then chapter 23, verses 10 to 15, or you can follow along in your bulletin. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, now immediately you say, I thought we didn't buy them, but this is that you are buying the labor, the Hebrew is not, sub, not selling himself, but rather selling his labor to the debtor, <clears throat> to the debt holder. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Then a man sells his, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. Chapter 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard 
on their lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, please fall on us on our study today and make your word come alive with understanding. Would you help us to understand your heart and your character in this odd passage and understand from it the principles that will enable us to imitate your good news to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said, amen. In the church where I pastored before, there was a, we had a ministry called Medical Campus Outreach. It was an outreach to the local medical college, and, and we led people to Christ, and we discipled them. And, and it was not just the medical students, but uh, those in the allied health professions as well, and, and uh, those at the dental school. And part of their discipleship was, was uh, their, the providers who were their mentors would take them on mission trips around the world and they would use their skills to bring healing in the name of Christ. One of their favorite trips was along a portion of the Amazon. They accessed it through Ecuador. And they would, they would rent a gigantic barge, a giant houseboat. They would sleep on it, they would eat on it, and they would, from there, they would, uh, they would conduct their clinics as well. But over the course of the decade, their work became less and less efficient because they had to hike farther and farther into the jungle with all of their medical supplies to reach people who were in need. They weren't living along the river banks as they once did. And on one Sunday after they had come back from one of those trips, one of the providers said, George, we are seeing with our own eyes what you said happens with the gospel. That the gospel not only brings a reconciliation between God but, and uh, sinful people by asking Christ to take away your sins and give you his righteousness. He reconciles you spiritually with him and you live forever. But he said, you, you also have taught us that the, the gospel causes people to flourish. It brings thriving. It heals people's whole lives. And we saw that. We, we hiked into the, the jungle this time. It took us longer and longer to get to the, to the people. They're not living on the riverbanks anymore. We realized that those people that we've led to Christ over the last decade have, have understood that the gospel brings life to all of life. And so they're, they're going into the jungles and they're carving out villages they're getting away from the diseases and dangers of the riverbanks. They're going farther into the jungle. They're carving out villages. They're creating uh, their vocation, recreating their vocations there. But they said the, the thing that struck us this time as we, get, we approached one of those villages is that those dogs are not mangy anymore. Even their dog's health is improving. And then, and then their chickens, he said, their chickens have feathers. They're well-nourished. They're in coops. The gospel, he said, is making a difference 
in their lives, in their relationship with God, and even in the bodies of their chickens. The gospel transforms all things. Now that is what this passage and the, and the consequent, the, the subsequent laws and this long section really stretching all the way through Deuteronomy, it's what this, it's what this says is that, is that God's law brings life. That when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you submit to him as your Lord and, you, and, you're, and the Bible starts directing the way you live, it improves all of life. It doesn't make it perfect. It doesn't totally undo the fall. But life has greater purpose and greater joy, and the way especially you deal with other people should be more dignifying. Now, let me give you three results of what happens when, when we are participating with God in His work of redemption. When we're sharing the gospel, the good news for all of life, we bring good news to work. We bring good news of freedom, and we bring good news of dignity. Now, I have a, a typo in your bulletin. The first main point is work, not word. We bring good news to work. Where do I get that? Let me, let me show you how Moses makes this point by the structure of his books, his repetition, not just his themes. Moses tells us since he, as he starts unpacking these laws as, that God has given him, he tells us by the very structure of the book how we are to respond to God's grace. Let me, let me explain it this way. It's like a picture frame that's matted and has a picture in the middle. Here are some verses you need to understand for this to make sense. Moses frames all of the law with these, this one statement. In chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, repeated again in Deuteronomy 26, verses 8 and 18. Chapter 19 of Exodus, 19 and 4 and 6. And chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, he says this, you are my treasured possession. Remember when we studied that in chapter 19? He says, you are my treasured possession. Can you imagine how that fell on the ears of Israelites who had been treated worse than animals by their Egyptian slaveholders for over 400 years? You are my treasured possession. That's the frame of this picture. That's the frame of the whole Bible. God saying to you and to me who are redeemed in Christ, you are my treasured possession. And then there's a frame within that frame, like a mat, like a mat on a picture, a frame within the frame. One side of it is in Exodus 21, verses 22 to 26. We studied that last week. The regulations for worship repeated in chapter 23, verses 14 to 19, regulations for worship. That's the frame within the frame, and this is what Moses is saying. Because you are his treasured possession, you must worship him alone. You respond to that grace by worshiping him. Don't have any other gods. No other god 
has ever said you're my treasured possession. Canaanite gods, pagan gods don't tell their worshipers you're treasured possessions. They abuse their worshipers. God alone is the gracious Father who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage as his treasured possession. It stands to reason you must worship him. That's the frame within the frame. And then the central point then made is because you're his treasured possession. And after you have worshiped him, you want to imitate the grace that he has shown in your life by showing it to others. And you become a servant of love. That's my dad in the middle with his little birthday party hat on. One of the greatest loving servants I have ever known. Treasured possession. Worship in response to that treasuring and serve lovingly those around you, especially those who are most vulnerable. That, that, is, that explains all of God's law, all of the specific household codes and applications of God's Word are explained by that structure. You're His treasured possession. You worship Him in response to that, and worshiping in that way, you're motivated then to serve the least of these in love. And who is the first group that God points out that they may, must serve in love? It is those who have fallen on the hardest of times in debt. He turns to these. We unfortunately have them called slaves here. But these are, these are ones who have been forced to sell their labor, not their bodies, not even give up their land. But either because they have stolen or because they have mismanaged their farms or because they've gotten themselves, they've overstretched, or maybe it's famine or war. Something has made them vulnerable, and they can't work out of it on their own. God says, I want you to make a way for them. You may not treat them the way you were treated. They are not chattel. They are not your possessions. I will make it a capital crime if you ever steal them and make them your slave. But if one voluntarily comes to you and says, I want to work for you and to give my labor to you so that I can get out of my debt, then you are to take him on, take her on, and you are to limit it for six years. They may do so for six years. And when they have labored for six years and no more, they are to be released from your employment if they so choose, and their debts are to be erased. It's radical. There's no example in the ancient Near East of such a thing. There's no example in the ancient Near East of framing laws by the way you treat people who have gotten themselves into debt even by their own mismanagement and irresponsibility. This is unique because there's only one God who loves people this way. It really is a picture of the gospel in itself because this is the this is the way we, this is what the, the Bible teaches in the New Testament as well. For instance, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, you have become his treasured possession by his mercy. 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual form of worship. I want you to worship in response. And then I want you to turn and I want you to love those around you. How are you to do that? You're to do that with a transformed mind. You're to live harmoniously with each other, even people who differ with you. You're to submit to governing authorities. You are to love. You are to consider others as more important to yourself. It's the whole rest of the book of Romans. And by the end of Romans, Paul says, you're to live this way because this is the way Jesus lived. Jesus knew the approval of his father. The the father said, you are my beloved son. He knew he was the father's treasured possession. And so he said in worship, I delight to do your will, oh my God. And then he turned toward us and he said, I will serve them by giving my life for them. I will serve them in love even while they're yet my enemies in order to make them my friends and co-heirs. Now, very specifically, our text has to do with work, that the one way, the one gift we give, a practical outworking of the gospel is by doing work that we know now is meaningful because God makes work meaningful and we have the privilege, many of us have the privilege of enabling other people to do meaningful work. In the Old Testament, as we've already learned, the, 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 the Old Testament, the Hebrew uh, citizen had no other commodity beyond their land than their labor. And God said, when someone falls into debt, someone falls into problems, you may not take their land from them. That land is theirs. It's the foundation of our modern bankruptcy laws that protect the, the, the households of those who have gotten into, into debt for whatever reason. And you, you may not take their land, but what they can do is sell their labor to you for a limited period of time so that they can return to becoming independent farmers if they so choose. Furthermore, the Bible prescribed in the Old Testament, and it's alluded to in our text, the laws of gleaning. And here our own Michael Rhodes, who grew up in this church, is a great theologian. Michael Rhodes, in his book, The King's Economy, where he gleans, he gleans from the Bible, biblical principles for economics. He, he, he talks about gleaning, makes a real contribution here, where he says that uh, the laws of gleaning did this, that they told someone with a farm or with agrarian resources that you, may, you must not maximize your profits for selfish purposes, but you must leave some profits in the field, whether it's grain or or our animals, or leave some profits in the field. And then the poor may gather them. They may labor and gather them for themselves, and thus you've made not only resources available to them, you've made dignified, dignified work available to them. He didn't tell them to hand it out freely. He didn't say, go drop it off at their doorstep so they don't have to do anything. They must labor for it but you make it possible. The New Testament reiterates the same. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him do something meaningful with his hands so that he will have something to give. You hear all of those principles. You hear unworthiness. 
the thief. Let the thief be restored this way by doing meaningful work, that is morally good work, with his own hands, I'll just give handouts, that he making a livable wage might have something to share. Those are the principles of work. It's, it's, it's labor, it's, it's meaningful, it's moral, it's, it's livable, and it's, it's generous. And that all flows from God's own example, doesn't it? You know, in Genesis 1 and 2, God labored. He uses the words of laboring. He, he, he worked hard to construct the world, and in doing so, He had great joy in it. And then he rested on the seventh day. And then effectively, when he creates Adam and Eve, he turns to them and he says, now I want you to participate in this joy with me and this fun with me. I'm going to entrust the unpacking of the creation to you. Work is not a punishment. Work is a joy. Work is living into our image-bearing natures. When the fall came, he didn't take work away. He just said, it's going to be harder to work, but I still want you to work as an image bearer of me. So when God addresses these Israelites, He's saying, you experience these dehumanizing aspects of work from at the hand of the Egyptians. They made you labor without rest. They did not pay you a livable wage. They didn't pay you any wage. There was nothing for you to give back. And you, you worked at something that, that was, was immoral. It just served their indulgences. I don't want you to do that in Israel. I want you instead to recognize your work as an act of worship to me. It's a reflection of bearing my image. I want you employers to pay a living wage so it can support a family, and then I want you as a laborer to turn and share with you the resources you have with other people. You say, well, someday I'll be rich and I'll share. That's not the… No, it's whatever resources God has given to you. He's given to you, he's given to you uh, networks that you've benefited from. Well, help other people who don't have access to those networks get into them. You say there are some people in our city who can't get hired because they have a criminal record. You heard about one of the partner ministries we have, Economic Opportunities, and, and, and other, uh, other ministries we partner with who, who fight for equal justice for those, especially juveniles who are who are not being treated fairly or don't have the resources uh, to deal with their legal situation. And then we support other ministries that, that are intermediaries to, to help employers employ people with a criminal record, help those who come out of jail or out of prison to, to learn how to negotiate the working world. And we do it all in the name of Jesus. Uh, outreach could be described this way. Outreach is, is helping other people to live a better life in this world and the next in the name of Jesus. We don't help people live a better life just for this world. We don't help people live a better life just for the other world. We don't help people live a better life for this world and the other world except by explaining it is a gift of Jesus Christ. It's what Christians do. Christians find what is broken, and then we move into it and repair it. 
We don't get our defenses up and say, well, it's not my fault. Or, or we don't get paralyzed in guilt. We say, as one of our elders said recently, my sins are nailed to the cross. Now show me what to do. How can I repair what is broken with the resources of Christ? So we provide Christians are in the business of doing meaningful work, whatever your calling is, and extending, creating the opportunity for meaningful work especially in a city like ours with 40,000 opportunity youth between 16 and 24 who are largely unemployed for various reasons of brokenness, the largest percentage in the country. Instead of shrinking back from it in fear or guilt, we're engaging it. It's great to preach this kind of sermon in this, in this church where you're engaging it so vigorously. It's our privilege to do it in the name of Jesus. There are two other things here that I've, I've covered a lot, so I don't have to spend as much time here, but we also bring the good news of freedom and the good news of dignity. Good news of, of freedom. He says, you were slaves in Egypt, so now you make sure that there are no slaves around you. You pursue their freedom. Make it possible for this one to work out of his debt Slavery. Wherever we find poverty as Christians, wherever we find slavery as Christians, bondage as Christians, we lean into it. When we discover that there's, there's bondage to substance abuse, we provide substance, ministry, substance abuse ministries, addiction ministries. Where we have found as Christians modern-day slavery human trafficking for sex purposes or for, or for cheap labor purposes. It's been, it was a Christian in the Department of Justice who rang the bell to our nation that human beings were being trafficked in America in a sex slave trade. It was a Christian in the Department of Justice who also uh, started the International Justice Ministry and and goes around the world with teams of volunteer lawyers uh, releasing those who are held captive to provide cheap labor and, and to serve sexual indulgence. Christians have led the way in that. We oppose it at every place, and there's pl plenty to do. We support ministries that... that uh, help inform medical professionals and, and law enforcement professionals for how they can detect human trafficking. We support ministries here that, that provide shelter for women who have been rescued and their children who have been rescued out of human trafficking. We, we still need volunteers who will open their homes at a moment's notice for that, for when there's a sting operation for a woman and her children to have safety even in the middle of the night. Christians, this is what Christians do. The modern form of debt slavery that I've addressed before from Exodus chapter 1 is payday lending. It's something else we take on as Christians, and we've developed, a number of you have developed creative alternatives. Payday lending emerged in the 1990s in our country as uh, usury laws were relaxed. Uh, 
The usury law is typically that, that nobody may, no one may charge more than 8 to 10% on a loan because that's just historically been viewed as a humanitarian rate at which someone can work back from debt. But with the relaxing of usury laws, states have been able to charge on average 391% for loans that are just a few hundred dollars. The debt threshold, at least I checked it, last I checked it may be different now. In Tennessee, it's 450%. It's 1,200% in Missouri. It's impossible to work out of that kind of debt. There are 22,000 plus such outlets around the country, $27 billion a year industry, and $20 billion of that is in subsequent loans taken out to pay off previous loans. No one can ever work out of that kind of debt. It keeps them permanently enslaved. Well, when I first broached that subject here, you in typical fashion rose up to figure out a way to, to cure it. Leaders in banks here came up with creative ways to provide different kinds of loans. Now, some of you put up your own money to help people come out of, of uh, payday lending and then structured something very very gracious to help that person get back on their feet again. And uh, where you have opportunity, others of you addressing it in a legal way. This is what Christians do. We bring meaning to work. We pursue freedom for those who can't speak up for themselves. And then in imitation of God, we pursue dignity for every human being. In these laws, you see it. God's, first of all, God has a, God uh, is in the business of rescuing the poor. He passionately speaks on behalf of the poor. I don't want them to remain poor forever. I want them to break out of their cyclical poverty. And I want you to help them who have resources. I want you to help them to do it. He says in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 8 to 16, that if we, are, if we are oppressing the poor in any way or just not showing compassion, his fierce anger breaks out on their behalf. He says to those in, in Jeremiah's day, when they had already forgotten that they had been rescued from their bondage and their exile, he said, I'll give you freedom. I'll give you freedom to fall by the sword and by plague and by famine. No matter what else you may conclude, you must understand that God is, God is not pleased when the poor are forgotten because we were poor. And you say, well, I help the poor if they show that they're worthy of it. What if Jesus had treated you the same way? We use gospel logic in addressing these issues. Before we were worthy, while we were yet his enemies, Jesus pursued us, and while one is in debt or in poverty, even by their own doing, we pursue them, find dignified ways to, for escape. The foreigner, there are lots of laws regarding the foreigner, the immigrant, in other words. Even if the foreigner, he says, has been captured by you in war, even if they have risen to raise their hand against you, I have protections for them. You must not bring them bodily injury. You must not even knock out a tooth. And if you kill 
an immigrant or foreigner in your midst, you will be punished by capital punishment yourself. What do Christians do? Christians turn to their neighbors, even immigrants who are not supposed to be here, but because they're our neighbors, we treat them in the kindness and love of Jesus Christ. And then the women and children, marriage was to be regarded as sacred even among those who were in debt. Sounds like children are being sold to these masters to be used as and, and labor, that's not the case. It's when someone became so desperate they couldn't feed themselves, they could, they could turn their children over for protection to somebody with means, and they could gain sustenance themselves. The little girls were to be protected as the, as the, as the employer's own daughter. And even Women who were single were to be treated with all the dignity and protections of a married woman. Children especially were to be guarded. This is what Christians do. We take up for the children. We take up for the disenfranchised. We stand up for those who are unborn, partially born. We stand up for those who with disabilities. We stand up for those elderly treated with dignity to the end of their lives. This is what Christians do because we're his treasured possession. I saw this very dramatically carried out, this privileged engagement in the gospel, imitating the gospel to other people. In the first church I I pastored, and and we, we didn't know anything about mercy ministry at the time. All we did was hand out some gift cards or, or cash, and basically we're telling people just leave us alone, just take the money and go. And one of my deacons was so convicted by, by what he read in the Bible and other resources, he said, we have to do this more intentionally in the name of Jesus. We have to help people become restored. So he designed a mercy ministry by which he, he went out into the, 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 all the areas around St. Louis and he, especially the, the areas that were disadvantaged. And he built relationships with pastors across denominational lines. As long as they preached Jesus, it didn't matter the denomination. And across racial lines. And he said, I want you to do this. We have resources. We have money. We have employers. We have other uh, resources legal and networks and so forth. And when you become aware of a need, would you please invite us into it? We won't take over. Just invite us into it, and we'll partner with you in meeting that need. Or early on, a pastor of a little church in a a disadvantaged area called and said, this dear woman has shown up on my doorstep, and she has some little children with her, and, and she's homeless. And, 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 and then, then her husband has just gotten out of prison. He has been there five years. He doesn't have a driver's license. He'd, they're not getting along. They're separated. He's homeless too. Can you help us? Well, we helped find a place for Tichelle and the children to live, and she worshiped with that, that partner church. And then we made a relationship with the, the man, and, and we, we helped him get his driver's license restored. And then we helped him get his CDL so he could become a truck driver. And then our, our people took about 30 people to fill in the gaps that, for whatever reason, have been left open societally or 
racially or familially, whatever they are, it takes multiple people getting personally involved to make up those differences. So about a team of about 30 people surrounded that couple and they worked with them and their marriage was reconciled. Then they started worshiping in our church as a, as a couple and one of the most moving things I ever saw was when Tim for the first time took the offering plate and he put his own offering in there so that he could help others too. Then this. These, these, these families, these couples had made genuine friendships with Tim and Tichelle and they had dinner together and they had fun together with their children and, and so one of the women found out that it was Tim's birthday and she baked him a cake. She put his name on it. They invited him over for dinner. He thought he was just coming over for dinner like he had done many times before. They all stood around, looked at the cake and he was sort of, he was sort of daydreaming, looking around and they said, Tim, what do you think about your birthday cake? He said, it is, it is my birthday. I forgot. I've never had a birthday. And I've never seen a birthday cake. And it has my name on it. This is what Christians do. We don't act patriarchically or, or, or patronizingly to give some handouts or hand up. We get personally involved in such a way that the people whom we befriend and serve understand also they are treasured possessions. And by serving them in word and deed, we compel them to come worship our Savior. What a privilege we have to live out the gospel in very practical ways. Let's do it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I thank you for the many in this congregation already involved in bringing shalom to this city would you raise up more and would you in so doing get a name for Jesus Christ as the Savior of body and soul in Jesus name we pray amen